welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and we are back at the Utah Olympic Oval with one of our favorite guests ever making a return, <laughs> Derek Para. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back <laughs> to the show. Thanks for welcoming back to the Oval. I have a proper introduction for you today, so okay, right. <laughs> make sure we, we introduce you properly. Derek Para is an American speed skater from San Bernardino, California. Derek transitioned from roller to ice in 1996, which we discussed in our last interview together, which I'm just chills. Just being in this building, dude, just having that conversation. I've listened to it again a few times. It's just straight up chills. I love it. <laughs> in 2002, Derek won two medals in the Salt Lake City Olympics, winning gold in the 1500 and shocking the world with a silver in the 5000. He is the author of the book, Reflections in the Ice, which he wrote in 2003. Today, he works at the very facility where he won gold at the Utah Olympic Oval, where he is a sport program director. Derek, welcome back. Oh, thank you for having me back. So um, the, the guy at the front desk who let me in, he said we were talking about how great of a dude you were and um, <laughs> all the things you did while you were skating. He talked about a picture that exists where you have your hands in your skates and you're doing a handstand on ice on skates. Is this true? I think it's a tall tale. Um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't ever remember putting my hands in skates and doing a, a, a handstand while skating. He, I'm, I'm he claims to have photographic evidence. I'd love to see that. Maybe it's someone who <laughs> looks like too. me, a doppelganger maybe, but it's not me. <laughs> the only, only notice, I guess, uh, notable picture I know of right now is that one that's out on the banner. Yeah, uh, yeah That yeah, one's yeah. been passed around. It's on the, online. But yep. no, um, I'm, not, I'm not one who take pictures for things like that. I wouldn't go crazy and do, something, do things like that. Uh, I'm not on social media. I don't post, hey, look at me. I'm doing this or that. So I definitely wouldn't have a picture like that around me. Well, the Boundless Body investigation <laughs> team is on the case. We are looking for the picture when Let we find it. Let me know if you find it. Yeah. <laughs> we will definitely let I you know. I will rip it up. <laughs> <laughs> so last time we were here, uh, we got to have a conversation with you about your life and your experience, how much adversity you had to overcome to make it to the Olympics, to compete in the Olympics and actually win two medals, including gold medal here in your, on your home ice. Um, and it was such an enthralling story that we didn't get to the part about the diet, nutrition, mm -hmm. training. And so today I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how that looked back when you were training, what's changed, um, how the skaters train today versus then. So tell us a little about, bit about what kind of training you would need to do to compete at that level in speed skating as a sport. Well, that's a great question. I mean, if you look at, I mean, it's been almost 20 years, right? Uh, and we were back around the early 2000s where... We're training in philosophies of the years prior, decades prior of what, what we know about sports. And speed skating, uh, in this country anyway, is not a well-funded sport. That's right. Uh, we don't have millions of dollars. We're not making paychecks or anything like that. We're out here really training for that opportunity to, to, uh, to get to the Olympics and hopefully win a medal or just have a personal best, right? That's our everyday challenge is try to get a little bit better. Didn't the coach from Netherlands call us out on that in 2014? Like, we, we went to... Sochi and came up with like one medal or no medals or something. And the, yeah, the Netherlands coach is like, well, you guys are putting all your money into a sport where you run your fittest dudes at full speed at each other. Like nobody gets paid to do speed skating there. Like you need to reallocate funds. Yeah. We, we don't have that. Uh, other sports like professional sports that are thriving mainstream sports, they have that backing. You, you don't see speed skating on TV every day. Like you watch turn on ESPN. You're not going to see a speed skating clip. Once in a while, you'll, you'll get a, a little piece here and there. Uh, and U.S. speed skating has tried over the years to try to buy more time. But if you, you're not exposed to it, you don't see it. You don't dream it. You, know, you don't want to live it. And I was lucky enough to see it from uh, a different perspective when I came from a different sport. But, I mean, 
I was 26 years old and I really didn't even know Eric Hyden was yeah, who right. he was. I mean, I met him as a cyclist. You know, got, I remember getting his race numbers off of wow. after a race in Redlands, California <laughs> when so I was cool. 15 years old. But um, because of that, there's not a lot of financial support. The U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee provides some support to their annual budget, but um, that's mostly for, you know, whether it's staffing or the organization itself and a little bit of support funding. And athletes get their own funding from the USOC, USOPC based off of their performance at the world level. Mm. So everything that's done in the buildings here or, or in the weight room next door is all kind of self-funded science, sports science from wow. US speed skating. So back when we were in, going into, into 2002, we didn't have a lot of funds. We had some, I mean, the Olympics were in the US, we got a little bit more funding from the Olympic committees, but we didn't have the state-of-the-art technology like they did in Holland. Uh, just for, for, for very, a very short story, in Holland, on this rink, on our rink, we have a 40-meter oval. It's just you can see if you're or you can't see on, t on the radio here, but um, there's this very low ceiling. We've got some rinks, uh, lights, things like that. In Holland, they have a little halo bar that goes right over the track where you skate. And on that halo bar is a, is a timing system that has a laser light that points down at the ice. It's been, it's been there for about 18 years. Wow. And you can program what speed you want that light to travel on the track. So I'm out there and there's no one for me to skate with. I can go over to a, a pad or my coach and they can type in 28.0 lap. And all of a sudden you'll, and the color is, is designated to me, you'll see a color going around on the, on the ice. And all I got to do is get behind it and follow it. And that will take me to my 28 second lap. That and I is can pace myself. Cool. Wow. We don't have that here, right? This has been around for, for years. We have transponders now that we use for timing, which is an RIFD, uh, tag that you put on your, you've seen pricing your marathon runners, they wear them yeah, on, their, yeah. on their numbers and it gives you your time as you come across the line or your splits. We use that now for racing, but back when I was skating, the, the Dutch were using that for timing and training. So they have a chip that they give their skater, they have all the time, they're monitored and every lap they do, their heart rate, um, everything is taken down in a chart so they can monitor the athlete to see how they're training. For us, I remember us getting up and uh, coming to practice and your coach looking at you and after a really hard day the day before and saying, hey, are you good to go? And you'd kind of self-check. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. Let's, let's go, you know, and you go out and you train hard. Sure. Um, that's not happening today. Uh, it's completely opposite. Our, our coaches have a, a system, as I think it's called Biomega. They've been running with, they've spent a couple of years collecting data on every athlete. Hmm. At first, the data is great to have, but it doesn't mean anything because you don't know how it, how it plays out in the role of the, of the athlete's cycle. You need to collect enough of the data. To see, see any kind of patterns, right, yep. or rhythms. So now we're, we're, they're getting more in depth with that where, uh, like a Brittany Bow, they've got years of records of her, how, how her body reacts to training. And if she wakes up and her heart rate's a little high, yep. she, the second she wakes up, an alarm goes off on her phone that goes to her coach that will trigger her, their trainer so that before she even gets to the rink, they're going to adjust her training program gotcha. so she doesn't go over that over that cliff and start digging herself in yep. a hole. Super cool. So that's uh, heart rate variability. Is that correct? Yeah, that uh, along with just the way your body responds to altitude. There's, there's, we were training for an altitude Olympics. The next Olympics are not going to be altitudes. There's different science behind that. We lived high, trained low. Okay, so I was going to ask you specifically yeah. about that. That's what we say in cycling. So that's the same concept. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, you, you, you live at a higher altitude. Your body produces more red blood cells. You're able to carry more oxygen to your body. When you go to low altitude, you have even more red blood cells, but that quickly depletes after a week or two. You're, mm. you're back to normal, right? 
you're Superman for about a, a week. Yep. Uh, then you come back to, to normal. Then you have to come back to altitude to replenish those blood, those uh, hematocrit and hemoglobin in your body. And then you're back to uh, high altitude training and you're, you're stabilized. Mm. So we always try to keep our, our, um, our levels really high. And a, another quick story is in the le- year leading up to the games, we would fly into World Cups the, day, the morning of. I knew that my best chance for success here, based off of our training program and our limited resources, was to have success in Salt Lake, and we were willing to do anything to try to ensure that. So when other, other team members of the sprint team and so on were going to Holland a week early, getting used to the altitude and the ice, and then racing, we were staying here at altitude, mm. getting on the, the literally the last flight the night before, arriving in Holland at 8 in the morning, driving a, getting a car, driving to the, to the oval there, changing, racing. Racing then, that first day? That first day. After flying? Yes. Wow. We'd be there three days, go to Norway. This is in the pre-Olympic year. Go to Norway, go to an altitude house up in the mountains of Norway, drive three hours to get there, drive three hours back down, train, race that weekend, go back okay. up, wait, then go to Innsbruck, and then come down again, race, and then fly home that Sunday night. So out of three weeks, we were probably out of altitude seven days. Wow. Right? Come back to the, to to Utah, and you're you're you can resume training at a at a at a quick in a quicker timetable because you're not having to recover from travel and re, and build up your red blood cells again. You're there a little bit faster, and you're trying to do that. And 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 there were a few skaters that saw that we were doing that. And I remember after I won, uh, one of my competitors said, "You know, people thought Derek was crazy and his team was crazy, but it, it's it worked out for him. You wow. know, we we took a chance. So that's what we're doing now. Um, we actually at one point we were training with oxygen tanks on our back. I remember CO2 that. I remember canisters. that. Yeah. Uh, we didn't know it was an explosive device basically on our back, but <laughs> we were trying to go deeper, physically go deeper into a workout. And we couldn't do that with the limited oxygen here at, at sea level, at uh, altitude. So we had a cannula with some uh, supplemental O2, and we were able to recover and breathe in, in those uh, efforts. But when we took off the canisters, and we re- it took us twice as long to recover. So we couldn't do a normal training day the next day, we had to have a recovery day, then come back to training because we were going so deep as the if we were load. at yeah, if we were as we were at uh, sea level. Wow! So now, uh, and we had we had drag suits. We used drag suits, which are basically a suit that has um, a high resistance. So we were skating at the effort that we would be in the laps we would be in, in Milwaukee. So let's say, even though we're here in Salt Lake City, mm. so we're getting the benefits of high altitude training at the conditions of sea level, which helped us, I think, stay strong, be able to push through the, the, the smoother or uh, fast ice here. We were skating more at a, at a normal ice um, uh, traveling speed. Interesting. So it helped us out. But all, all those all those played a factor in how we were approaching our games because we knew that we had a, a altitude games here. Now we would train different for Sochi or uh, Beijing or Tor- Torino because those ice surfaces were a lot slower and we had, we had to figure things out or mm. take our best guess. And that's really what it is, is the best guess. But our technology was very uh, prehistoric in a way, in the way we trained. And it was a lot of just connection with your coach and verbal communication of how you're feeling. And today it's completely different because the resources have gotten, has, have, have more, been more readily available to U.S. speed skating. They've invested more. And now there's, those athletes are getting, I think, in my opinion, a better sports science program and hopefully they can capitalize on that interesting so with 
every sport, there is very specific moves, movements, tactics, things you need to train for. Like hockey is different than curling. That's different than speed skating. They're all different and require different, you know, training and all that kind of thing. And, and speed skating is highly, highly specific. I mean, you're, you're only turning one direction mm-hmm. and, and you're skating and that's about it. I mean, in short track, obviously there's a lot of technique and there's a lot of obviously technique and long track as well, but a lot of strategy and things like that. So is the way to get stronger and faster on the ice? Is it, is it, you need to skate a lot or you need to balance the skating with what you do off the ice as well? Well, that's a great question. In my opinion, and I, I, I come from a different place because I had to learn the sport at an older age. I had a lot of miles in my body from inline skating. But again, like I had mentioned before, it's like throwing a ball overhand or underhand. Two different techniques, same destination for the, for the ball, but you have a different process in your mind of how you get there. So I had to do a lot of laps to relearn that process and the timing. If, it's, if, if before my skating was one, two, three, Ice skating was more like a three one two. It you had to change the sequence in order to, to get the best results out of gliding and pushing rather than higher tempo and a quicker push. Mm. So um, in that you had to think a lot and wait for your push. So my training program would be a different than someone who's been an ice skater their whole life as far as the, the drills on the ice. Mm. Biking, weight room, that kind of thing was somewhat similar. But I know that a big difference that I had in, in my mindset going into the, into the games um, was based off my experience is that getting in a weight room wasn't it for me. I, 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 at the time I was an elite athlete, I could build muscle pretty quick, um, just my body type. And when I got to the sport, they put me in a weight room and I, I gained you know, like 20 pounds of muscle. I went from 126 to 150. It was just wow. hulking little midget, you know, <laughs> out there. But I couldn't skate any faster. It wasn't until I took it upon myself to talk with my coach uh, take the weight room completely out of the picture. I got a 40 pound weight vest and started doing very specific dry land jumps. And you know what dry land is. Yeah. It's imitations oh. of skating with a 40 pound weight vest on for hours and hours and jumps and jumps and lateral jumps and one leg jumps and forward jumps and you name it, combination of jumps all to instill that strength in that position so that I could have more success on the ice. Cause what was happening is I was, I was fine. But when I, my legs got tired, I was done. I had no ability to fight through that pain mm. and stay technically sound to continue my lap speed. So it wasn't until I got strong in that position until I actually started making some, some progress in the sport. And that's where my program differed than others. Some guys would go out there and do laps a certain way. My laps are strictly technical mm. with a focus on the timing um, and the strength in that position and where I was because I was so different coming from a different style of sure. skating. And so it, it, it differed, but... Uh, you have other skaters that come have come later because they've learned it in a better process. I think I was kind of a guinea pig along with a couple other skaters at that time. We were figuring out the sport. Once we figured it out, we could teach it easier to inline athletes crossing over mm. and accelerate that process uh, within you know a year and a half, two years, rather than wow. six years like it took me. Interesting. Well, you were a pretty good guinea pig. <laughs> got, got some hardware to show for it. Um, so you mentioned cycling, and cycling is such a great sport to combine with skating. And I think of cycling as more of like the cardiovascular versus the weight training. How do they balance those two things? Well, we use cycling uh, mostly in the, in the spring, summer a little in the fall for, for training purposes, like aerobic fitness, right? Uh, endurance, strength and endurance. Uh, and then as we got into the season, the, those rides are mostly recovery rides. You're sitting on a seat, you kind of letting the blood flow through your legs and recovering, getting that junk out of your legs. 
in the weight room, uh, just standard back then, you know, hypotrophy phase, right? Your absolute power, your peak power. You're going through these phases of trying to, to build your body up to hold that position. Uh, the difference is for me that in the weight room, you are you know, on two feet, you're kind of spread apart, right? Your back is arched, you got the, the dumbbell on your back, and you're doing these specific movements that are up and down. The skinning's not up and down, you're, you're traveling laterally cross an axis while you're creating force pushing down, which looks like you're pushing to the side, but you're actually pushing down as your body's traveling to a left or right, right? right? And, you're, and your skate's turning at the same time. So there's a lot of dynamics in there. I didn't feel out that the weight was, room was giving me the benefits I need to because I wasn't practicing what I needed to do with my body in that strength phase, mm. that push phase, that, that unbelievable pressure phase that yeah. I would have to have my leg extension. So doing the dry land for me was my alternative weight workout. Gotcha. So that worked better for you. Do you find that with most athletes or, or does it just, is it different for everybody? I think it's different for everybody. Um, most like a Chad Hedrick who, who never set, never rode a bike, never went in the weight room. He just skated. The guy wow. was a freak, uh, anaerobic freak. When he got same, same, similar situation as me, when I retired and he went to a different coach, his Dutch coach put him in the weight room and had him skating more, riding the bike more, and, and doing more traditional ice skater drills and techniques, and Chad lost his feeling for skating. Interesting. He, he at one point, was a 10K world record holder and, and uh, national world champion. Then he was getting lapped by Sven Kramer at a world championship. Wow. I remember him calling me from Europe going like, what am I doing wrong? I go, you got to get back on your skates. And mm. so uh, fortunately the next year I got hired, I got elevated from my development coach status to the Olympic coach and going into the 2010 year. And the first thing I did is I say, we're, we're going back to your basics. What makes you tick? You're, when we do our hundred mile bike rides, you're on skates. Mm. You can get in and out of the van at times, do 20 miles here and there, but you want you skiing again. I want you to find your rhythm, wow. find your strength and that tenacity he always had that he had lost wow. by being confined to a, 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 a box of, of, a, of a traditional speed skater. He wasn't Chad anymore. Gotcha. So we brought him back and he had great success that year and he won some more medals and it, mm. was, it was cool to see. But you have some people that love the weight room. They don't feel like they're productive unless they get in the weight room and they could go in there five days if they want to because they feel strong. Mm. It just depends on how you feel. It really just is yeah. that highly individual that you have to work with the athlete at their level and do what, what works best for them. Everybody has a different response, right? Yep. To, to whatever train load that is. Yep. And if you respond negatively, just like you can respond poorly to altitude, you don't want to live high. Mm. If, it, if you have a hard time recovering, you're going to live at the same level as this uh, ice rink. Gotcha. If you respond to the altitude training, you're going to live higher and higher until you get to a point where it's not beneficial anymore. And everybody's different. Everybody's yep. physiology is different. Gotcha. Interesting. A few years ago, I was introduced to a concept that, that says you should use the weight room to get strong and get really strong in the weight room and then leave the weight room and go do your sport. So I, my, my old mentality was, okay, you're a hockey player, so let's do hockey-type movements in the gym that kind of look like hockey. So maybe we'll swing something that looks like a hockey stick or maybe you'll jump back and forth and things like that. Yeah, and mimicking kind of that sport. And I think there's some value there, but it's also interesting to note that those, none of those things are hockey. One right. thing is hockey, and hockey is hockey. <laughs> and, and so if you leverage the weight room to get really strong and then go spend the rest of your time doing your sport, I think when people need to get into specific sports and, and adaptations, there's a lot of value to that. So I think it's really interesting that you noted that some, some people felt really good in the weight room and other people, they needed to skate a lot. Like you, you needed to learn that technique. And you can't 
that you can't mimic that. You can throw skates on. Yeah, but it, it is different, and it, and it is a little bit contradictory at times. So in my case, I don't like the weight room, right? I like to go out on the ice fresh in the morning and skate technically sound as best I could because I could feel everything. I was light. I felt light. I knew my body was fresh. My mind was fresh, and I could feel those things. But I think the, the cornerstone of my training program that allowed me to have my success was doing dry land. Mm. So dry land is like being in the weight room. Yep. You've got 40 pounds, you're doing jumps, you're doing your squat motions and, and, and different types of uh, imitations, but you're doing it in the skating motion. Yeah. And to me, th- what being in the weight room does, and now I, I like golf. I'm a, Actually, I'm obsessed with golf these days. And there are all these drills you can do with golf. And you, can, you know, I, at my house, I have a chin-up bar that I have in my doorway and I have a little elastic cord in there. And I'm, I pull down on the cord, which is kind of a weight room exercise, sure. I guess. And then I'll go in my garage and I have this little turf that I, I bought and, <laughs> and a little net and I'll go and swing and try to feel, because I think when you have resistance training, you incorporate other muscles that you normally wouldn't do when you're skating. So if I go out there and skate, I want to be as efficient as I can. I'm going to set a little higher, right? So I can have a little more blood flow and I'm going to try to be more rhythmic and mm-hmm. have flow. But when I'm in dry land mode, I'm going to put a weight vest on. I'm going to get super deep and I'm going to use every muscle I can to try to um, figure out where those pushes and, and begin and end and, and be compact as possible. And, I, and the belief is that when you take the weight vest off and you go out and skate and you're a little higher, you're a little more fresh. You have a little more power, mm, a little more endurance because you've maximized that effort. And now you're taking a little bit off. You're skating 80 percentage, but sure. you've gained those strengths. And whether it's before you're doing really slow, like in hypotrophy, you're doing these really slow movements, right? Like negatives, yep. Yep. Neg- negatives yep. going down. Skating's like that when you're doing summer training. You're doing really long laps, and you're doing very slow motion skating, and you're holding that push, mm. feeling the burn to know what muscles you're using so you can strengthen those muscles. So I think it does make sense. But for me, I think it's how you put it together. For me, weight room and skating didn't work, but dry land, dry land worked the best. As a skater, doing the motions and the, you know and that – Mimicking those motions and movements, to me, was my weight room workout. It just didn't – wasn't in the weight room. Yeah, it wasn't sure, with a bar. Sure. And that helped me succeed. And now in golf, I'm doing similar things and trying to gain more speed of – you know, more swing speed or club head speed and, and looking at different things like the biomechanics. I'm watching a bunch of videos on YouTube about how, how to be a better golfer. And that's so awesome. I'm approaching it like I am like I'm a skater now these days. But uh, that's, I think, what we have to do is we have to be a student of the sport – figure out which works for us and at least understand what's going on so we can better attack. That. Yeah, I see. Interesting. I, I've been lucky enough to go to the Masters twice. I went in oh, 2014 and 2016. You. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. In fact, Is it really um, that green? It's I hear it's, it's just, greener than yeah. you could ever imagine. There's not a blade of grass out of place. It is so beautiful. Wow. It's such an amazing place. But when I went in 2014, I saw somebody like Jason Day, and he was big and like pretty jacked. Like He was yoked. And I noticed in 2016, when I went back, he was still really ripped, but he was carrying much less muscle tissue. And same with Rory, uh, a few of those guys. I just noticed like- Shambo now. Yeah. Guy's yeah. a power lifter. Right. And you wonder, you wonder how they ride that line of like, maybe they got a little bit too bulky for their sport and needed to be that kind of long and lean. You still need to be strong, but maybe the body type, they went a little bit too far and kind of self-corrected. So that's interesting. Um, you mentioned the weight room. And a lot of technology that you use. If I walk into your weight room, what am I going to see that's different than if I just go to any standard gym? Oh, here at the yeah. facility? Uh, you're going to see um, some pressure plates, things to, to measure force and direction of force. That's, again, like I, I had briefly mentioned, when you're skating, you're riding 
probably inch and a half, two inches of a blade as it's traveling from the from the rear part of the blade to the front part of the blade and turning. So you're trying to find that balance and pushing as it's turning and you're moving at 30 miles an hour, right? It's, it's incredibly difficult. So you have to have the right amount of force in the right direction in order to maintain that. In order to be in a turn going 35 miles an hour with your body, you know, a foot and a half over from your skate, your core of your body, a foot and a half to the inside of your skate, you have to have a push going down and that lateral movement of your leg is going to hold you in that position. Yep. If you don't have that strength or the, the right angles, you're going to fall. Right. So a lot of the testing you're doing now is, is based off that um, lean angles, uh, the angle from your, your top of your foot to your shin, from the back of your calf to your thought, your hamstring, and so on. Where, where are the best angles for you um, biomechanically? How yep. can you get the most force and how can you get your body to be – because some skaters will skate high and have great angles – they get low, they lose it because mm. they aren't balanced. So if you look at a short tracker, and the Koreans are a great, great, um, are great example of this. They, are, they don't look like they're big, hulking no, athletes, but they're so balanced and so on their pushes. Mm. It's ridiculous. That's so why they go so fast. They're like birds. They're really light, 5'7", really light, sure. and they push in the right spot. We have, Americans are a kind of mixture of different people, so we have some thicker skaters, thinner skaters, and so on. But we go back to the basics. So USB skating is now going back to the basics of having certain specific testers or apparatuses that test your ability to have strength in that position and, and force plates are one. Um, and we have, are they wearing skates when you're on the force plates? Uh, lately they have before in the past we didn't, we, you know, we went to Tosh and we did some of the force plate jumps just upward. Now they're doing uh, it laterally. Uh, but now they have, they've made these little pieces out of wood that have some kind of sticky foam. You can put your skate in oh, interesting. Wow, and, cool. and get a better feeling of it. Cool. Um, that's even in the crossover from your left, when your right's crossing over your left, that's a very awkward position yes. and not natural for, for an athlete, right? Yes. Or any, any human being. So things like that, we're trying to find different ways. And you've seen the turn belts, you've seen oh, yeah. you know, our stretch cables, everything we can do to try to mimic that movement. And so the, the weight room here at the Element Center next door to our facility is basically a lot of that. You're going to have your traditional weights because you, you can't duplicate those, and they've been you know, true and tested. But you're also going to have some, some new factors in there, some new challenges of, to your body to help you replicate and master that ability to be in that position and have the best angle of force. Mm. Interesting. Are there any other um, assessments or testing? Do you do VO2 testing and any, any of those kinds of things to help you validate the training? You know, b back in my day, we, uh, we did this about every six weeks. We had um, our uh, uh, lactate testing. Mm. So we'd go out and we'd skate at a certain lap time, and they'd, they'd prick our fingers, take our blood, and say, okay, you're at two millimoles, you're still okay. We'd go until we get to six millimoles of, of, uh, of lactic acid in our blood, and then we'd stop. And that's, yep. that was our threshold. Yep. So we use those numbers in the practicality of skating to give us our, our numbers for our training zones. Um, I don't see that happening these days. Hmm. I think they're doing more monitoring gotcha. and maybe some stuff on the bike. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we did it on skate, which I thought was very beneficial because my my aerobic threshold on a bike is different than skating, which that's is right. different than running. Yeah, that's right. So we, we, we I, I thank the, the staff back then and Tosh, working with Tosh back then before the games, that they invested in us to do that uh, because I think that really made a difference in, in training in the right zones. Gotcha. Um, but now, now today with all the variable, with, I'm sorry, the wearables and all that data and data collection, do you, maybe they don't need that stuff no, as much. Probably not as 
are crucial. They have a good variety of numbers on different settings mm. so that you're getting an overall on your bike, skating, yep. running an average of where you want to be. Gotcha. Uh, but the, the, the skaters are going much faster now. The, the science in, in Holland and, and other European countries is light years ahead of us. Light years, wow. They've got... A, a lot of multi-million dollar backing in science and universities that are that because they that's their one of their best sports right yeah, they do cycling right. soccer and speed skating so they have people that are there volunteering investing their time to say how fast can we make our skaters wow. and my winning time of 143.95 in 2002 is now 140.18 so they're going to break the 140 barrier at this point point. Wow. Um, and a guy would have gotten it a couple of years ago if he didn't bobble in the last term. But wow. they're they're going out so hard, they're they're growing up on these skates that you know this just the technology of the clap skate and where to push and sure. the innovations in that and the blade, the blade strength, the blade flexibility, compound rocks. Now I mean all this is coming into play that complements this new sports science. Uh, and not, and we haven't even gotten into mental training. That's that's completely wow. yeah, that's another story. That yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's super interesting. Um, <laughs> what they should be working on in the Netherlands is how to make their fans even louder. <laughs> so they should be spending a lot of time. We talked with Thomas Ranjan, who's a Dutch soccer coach, and we talked about the fans, the fans at the Oval. Every time there's a World Cup here, there is a section of pure orange, and they are screaming at the top of their lungs. So cool. Love it. They, they uh, always do respect to them. They know the sport. So yep. they, they can watch you skate, see your first lap split, and know approximately what your finishing time will be. Or they know your personal best. Hey, Derek's two tenths ahead of his personal best wow, time, they and they'll know. start cheering for you. They they respect the athlete, and in Holland it was the first place I went to where they cheered for you if you had a good performance. It didn't matter if you were Dutch, Japanese, wow. or whatever. Interesting. I remember walking in one time and then seeing an f- American flag and said "par." I'm like, no way! I got fans here in Holland. <laughs> this is cool. And and I enjoyed that. I really enjoyed like going up and talking to the fans where you see the Dutch skaters just go by with their blinders on because that's 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 every day for them. Yeah, they don't sure. want to get if they get pulled into a crowd, they're stuck there, right? Wow. I was like, hey, high five and awesome, you know, making <laughs> friends. And they cheer for you on the ice, which was great. But they they know their sports. Wow. And they that's know awesome. speed skating. Wow, that's so cool. Um, I want to just hit this one last time. We talked a little bit about heart rate variability, and, and it's a test that you do in the morning. You check your heart rate. You you use you know most commonly today like an app. And it's a two minute, you know, three minute test. And it just measures the, the gaps and the difference of your heartbeat. And it can tell you whether your, your sympathetic um, nervous system is more fired up. So that's your fight or flight um, or your parasympathetic, which is more your rest and recovery. And it's, it's all about those differences in each heartbeat. And I was using it back in 2014 when I was speed skating pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty cool because you could see not only inside a week, what one training session would do like the next day you could see it in the numbers that I was like, well, you need to recover. Don't have a hard workout today, but it was also cool to see it over. I I remember one four week block of training that I did that was just super hard. And my numbers just week after week, after week, (laughs) after week, just drop, drop, drop. And I remember I did a training skate here where I was skating through slush. Like I was (laughs) so gassed, but that showed up in the data and I didn't need to do any other testing. Just do that heart rate variability test. And it shows you how's your training block. How is your training week? How's your training day? What do you want to do? Just like you said about Brittany, should we give you your a workout or maybe there's a B workout where let's work on flexibility, some core work. It's a lot lighter. Let's give you a little bit more recovery time. So I would have loved to have something like that. Our, our, Our extent that we had was we got up in the morning, we, we put our heart rate monitor on, we took our heart rate, wrote it down. And we had this questionnaire on our training program every day of every week that was, you know, how'd you rest? 
Are you motivated or, or not motivated? Where's your motivator from one to 10? You know, did you sleep well? How was your diet? Um, pre-workout mentally up or down, post-workout mentally up or down. So we monitor ourselves that way. And we could see that cycle. So when we were training in Milwaukee, we were able to do three hard weeks and one off week or easier yeah. week, which is really Monday through Wednesday was pretty, pretty standard. Still pretty hard, but we took Thursday through Friday, through Saturday or Sunday off. Mm. Give ourselves time to recover. We came to Salt Lake City, Salt Lake City, did that, and we were done after two cycles wow. because we we couldn't go four weeks hard. Sure, we cut it back to to two hard weeks, one easy week, like that. And that's where we started to see our jumps in our performance I and our see. ability to recover. And our cycles were, you know, our, our three week cycles are better than four week cycles. Yeah. Um, so, but it, again, we didn't have this technology. It was just looking at your coach in the eye and. And then sometimes our coach would say, you know, he'd see you skating and say, no, you're get a little lower. And we could. And he'd say, could. okay, you know what? Um, why don't you get on the bike today? And he, we'd fight with him. Like, no, I want to skate. Yeah, like, sure. The games sure. are in a year and a half. <laughs> no, I can't give up that time. Yep. But no, just, and sometimes he would just say, okay, nope, we're off the ice today. Let's go on a bike ride. Wow. So he helped us because a lot of times his athletes were our own worst enemy, right? Sure. We, we think we've got to go yes, harder and yes. harder. And there's times for that where that really helps, yep. you know, and helps to push you to the to that limit. And there's times where it'll push you over the limit, sure. and that's where things are dangerous. Sure. Uh, so today's athlete, um, and I'm I'm mixed a little bit about this as well because today's athlete, I think they're they train hard, and there's more science behind it. But I, I sometimes I wonder if it's missing that that X factor of of grittiness, you know, or tenacity. Where you sure. know, I don't care if I'm tired because I don't remember one time that I raced fresh. You're always tired. You're taxing your body as an athlete every day. Yep. And you might be recovered, but you're never 100% fresh yep, when, you're, right. when you're racing. Um, I was an endurance athlete. I like to have a little bit of my legs. So I didn't, I didn't rest up to the race day. I rested up the week before and spent a week of normal training building up so that I had that same familiar feeling in my legs that I could perform. Mm. So I, I, that was me. But there were times where you have to push yourself. Yep. Well, you might not feel great, but you know what? It's a World Cup. Got to do it. World Championship. Yep. You got to find a way to play mind games and trick yourself or your body into thinking you can do it and and tr- make that trigger happen rather than say, you know, my heart rate's a little high today. Not going to happen. Mm. And you that's, do that through your training. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And hopefully, if, I mean, it's it's the coach's job. And this is really, really, get, really get stressful. We talked about these cycles, right, throughout the year. Yep. And as an athlete, and you know this as well, you, you're looking at your Olympics, 2022. If I'm a coach, and I just had this, this uh, discussion with the athlete yesterday, you got to go backwards, right? Yep. You got to plan your training backwards so you have that data so you can look at the peaks and valleys and you want to peak during that Olympic time. And it was very strange for me to hear her say, why do you go backwards? I looked at her and I said, you're kidding me, right? She's been skating for seven or eight years but has never asked that question or never understood the training. Wow. And so when I was coming up, I think one of the benefits I had as an older athlete is that I came, I came from being number one in the world, came to the sport and I had questions. And a lot of times coaches don't like questions because it's almost like you're questioning, questioning their, them. Yeah. But my was always just, no, why am I doing this workout? Well, because well, why, how is it going to benefit me? And in my mindset was always, if the coach can't tell me why I'm doing this, I shouldn't be doing this. There's, I need to know why so that I can better 100%. process it. I'm not, I'm not going to find a, I'm not going to do a lobotomy workout where I just follow a, a, a program blindly. And thankfully my coach, Bart Shouten, uh, who got me to the top, 
he would say, oh, he had no egos. He wasn't a great skater, but he knew skating. He was from Holland. He was Dutch as well. I went to the Dutch uh, school of speed skating, whatever they have over there. And he said, no, we're doing this because of this. We're doing this workout because of this. And I go, oh, okay. And, and luckily, my coach, Virgil Dooley, who taught me everything on inlines, had similar workouts with the same goals. And I go, oh, this is just like this. And immediately it clicked and for it me, clicks. and I was I was all in. Wow. But there were some times where I'd say, "Well, why are we doing this?" And like, and he'd say, "Because this." I go, "Ah, I don't really get it. Mm. You, ha- you haven't, you haven't, I haven't bought in on it yet. Like, yeah, you got to tell me why." And, and if it didn't work for me, if I didn't, my body didn't respond, I was reluctant to do that. Where I could use a different workout to to gain that wow. that whatever it was we were looking for. Wow. So. I was told that really on, early on in my career, and I'm so grateful that I was that. And, and my clients know this. I tell them this. You should be able to stop me at any time and ask, why are we doing this exercise for this many sets and this many reps? What's the goal? Why am I doing this for them? You should be able to ask me any number of questions about what we're doing. And I damn well better have a good answer <laughs> for you and tell you specifically why we're doing this. Because I, you're right. A coach should always be doing things that lead to the athlete getting better. Yeah. One of those That's things. You said that. Yeah. One of the things you talked about was philosophical training programs. How has that changed? So uh, it's been, I will say it's changed, but it's kind of been um, adjusted a bit. So and I had this argument with a, a program director from a few years ago here. It was from Canada. So if you look at my seasonal program of periodization, we had, um, and this is how I, I believe I got my best and how I would coach today, even if we did, despite anything out there right now. If you look at our year and you go to the end of the year with the World Championship Tour and you went backwards, typically in a year you had – in my, my type of training program, imperialization program, you had 12 weeks, which is like three, four cycles of three weeks of endurance training. And in that training, you'd have, you know, you have technical work and some, some slower intervals and some endurance laps of just steady pacing, bike rides, weight training or, or strength training with a weight vest on, all that. After 12 weeks of that, we go into a, uh, intensive endurance type of training where you do some higher intensity intervals with some rest, uh, a little bit more distance, a little more speed, right? Because now you're tapping into those energy systems, different energy systems. Yep. Similar training program because you're monitoring those those days. Your laps are, are going to get a little bit longer and with a little more speed sometimes. Yep. Your tempo laps are going to be at max speed or are not there yet. You're getting to touch those systems, so you're getting close to your top speed, but for a very short period of time in intervals. And so on. Recovery ride still there. Technical work still there. Then you get that. That's usually that was usually uh, four four cycles. Gotcha. Then you get to your tempo with a red zone where you're starting to get into your race race paces. Yep. Right. You're going for 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 two cycles, two to three cycles. Hopefully three if we could get it. Leading into the World Cups, you're touching for three weeks or three cycles. You're touching your anaerobic zone. Yep. You're racing. Right. You're getting. You're digging deep, and then you start tapering and you start adjusting your program for those weeks of competition where you have a little bit of, you know, endurance training, a little bit of interval training, uh, prep day. Let your body adapt from the training cycle and and get used to those faster speeds. Yeah. And then you're just making adjustments, right? Every, every, every week was half a second faster lap on certain, on certain drills, right? Mm. Unless it was endurance laps where they were the same because you just want to, that's your recovery day, your endurance recovery day. Um, that works for a lot of people. It has for a number of years, and but a lot of people today say that's ancient training. Mm. Where um, a coach, to, a coach that was here, or a program director, program director that was here a few years ago, he did something similar, but it's, he took that whole year and put it in a week. 
Hmm. And he had week cycles like that where he'd have you know, one week of, of my first 12 weeks, then another week of my middle weeks, and the third week was his all out. Because he th- he, his philosophy was you can't – you have to trade, train speed. You can't get faster by going slow. And, and I said, I absolutely agree, but there's a time to go fast. In my opinion, there's a yep. time to go fast. Yep. There's a time to go slow. Yep. And for me, learning a sport, I had to learn it slowly before I could do it fast. Yep. And technically, I think there were advantages to that, and mentally as well, because you're following a progressive program. Rather than doing all-out sprints in May, when your world championship is in March, yep. the, that next year, there's burnout, there's a Mental lot of burnout. Yeah, yes. high intensity, yes. or the wear and tear in your body. Um, and I just, to me, that wasn't, philosophically, we had differences and disagreements on that. I think fundamentally, we agreed on some things, but my version was, here's my starting line, here's my finish line, and, but he condensed that into these cycles all year long. I see. And what I was seeing with some athletes that were in my training programs in the past they, they didn't progress because by the time that they were at the end of the year, they hadn't done enough endurance training, enough base training to get to have them feel confident to do a 1,500-meter at top end in a, at a race at the World Championships. They were done after three or four laps. Wow. They can go fast for three or four laps, but that was it. They don't have the stamina yeah. because they are only training in a certain way. Yeah, so that, that, that's the difference, and that's what I was seeing lately. And you have, I mean, you got someone like Ryan Shimbakuro who's been here for a number of years as a sprint coach, his program has fundamentally been the same. Uh, it's more of a sprint sprinter program, but he's changed things based off of the athletes, athletes and how they adapt over the years. Uh, some athletes, I mean, when I when I skated, we always skated Friday, Saturday, Sunday because you when you go to World Cups, you race Friday, Friday Saturday, Saturday, Sunday. Sunday. The, the teams today don't do that. They skate Friday, Saturday, Sunday offs. Hmm. They never have those back to back to back days, and we always try to implement extremely hard race situation on your body type days so that yes. you could adapt so that when you had a three day world championship, you weren't done after day two, you yep. had another day in you or you mm. were mentally and physically prepared for it. Cause you did exactly specifically what you were going to do in the training that you were going to do in racing. And I mentioned that last, last time we talked about yeah. how, uh, there's a belief that you know, people rise to the occasion, that kind of thing. Um, I, again, that, that can be true, but I feel like people rise to what they how they train. Yeah. So when you get to a pressure, pressure situation, if you've trained yourself for that moment, if you visualized it, you know, you're mentally tough, you're physically strong and you anticipate how that will, will happen, you will achieve success. If you go in there going, Oh, Hey, I've never been here before. What do I do? Who's that guy? I'm yep. so tired. Yep. Never, my first world championship race, my first Olympic race, the chances of success are very, are, are diminished and very slim. Yep. So you have to be prepared in everything you do in life, right? Not just sports, but everything you do. That's a great going, point. If you're going to an interview meeting, you need to know your stuff. If you're going to sit down with that HR person and you want a job, you've got to know about the company. You've got to know your strengths, know your weaknesses, and how you're going to perform. Yeah. Same thing out here on, in the, on the starting line. On the I race. love that. I think that's great. Um, Lance would always say that racing was the easy part. Like <laughs> going to the tour and winning was like, it, you know, it's hard, but it's not as hard as what I was doing two months ago, three months ago. That sucked. Like that was, yeah, that was the hard part. Yeah. That, that, that was the whole basis for my dryland program. Cause uh, it lasted about four hours from the time I got here to warm up oh, dude. to the last jump was four hours. And we're talking dude. 12 minutes of crossing over 30 seconds, 30 seconds, all the way from one side of the track to the other. Uh, one jump, one jump was six jumps per rep. 
and I was doing 30 reps. <laughs> so with the weight vest on. So after a hundred meters of jumping, you know, from twice on one leg and over to the other side and twice on that leg and over the other side, nonstop, I would I remember getting to the end of that 30 reps and either like collapsing to the ground or just putting my hands on my knees and I couldn't move my legs or shaking. That to me was, and I mean, my stomach's burning. I want to like dry yep. heave. That was so hard that every time I got to the line, I knew that no matter what was going to be put in front of me, I was prepared for wow. it. Because nothing was harder than that, those workouts. That's so cool. That's so cool. Tell us a little bit about the changes you've seen in nutrition. <laughs> uh, well, nutrition, I think, is based off a lot of factors. Uh, for me, it was resources. You know, I, I didn't have a lot of money. My, yep. I think my average uh, weekly grocery bill was 35 bucks. That's what I survived wow. on. That's all I, could, that's all I could afford to spend. Uh, and, and my, Five dollars a day. Basically, I, my, here's, here's my, if I can remember correctly, here's my weekly meal. Every morning I had a bowl of cereal, whether it was Raisin Bran Crunch or Raisin Bran or Honey Nut Cheerios, whatever it was. I, I just, I didn't eat a lot in the morning. I just had a little bowl of cereal, like a cup of cereal, half a cup of milk type of thing. Wow. That was it. My lunch was always a turkey sandwich with cheese, lettuce, tomato, and some, sometimes some dressing, sometimes not, maybe mustard or something, nothing really uh, extravagant, uh, a piece of fruit, some juice. I came back with a snack before my next workout, and then I went home at night, and I either had pasta, uh, chicken and pasta, rice and chicken, black beans and rice. Uh, And at one point, I was making sloppy joes because I was told to eat more more meat, more red meat or more meat. Uh, But that was it. And I would, on Sunday, when my day off, I would cook all my meals, put them in Tupperwares, and I would use those throughout the week. And as part of my recovery day, that was my prep day. You know, I took a bath, I massaged my legs, I worked out on my body, made meals for the for the week, and then that, and then, and then every Saturday I'd go and reshop again for food, and wow. that, that was it. Um, today, uh, and when I when we had diet analysis analysis back then by the people at the, the nutritionists over at the U.S. Olympic Committee, and even here in, in with Tosh, they were always saying to me anyway, they were saying, "Well, you, you don't eat bad, but you need to eat more." or you need to eat more variety. And for a while, I tried that, and it, it didn't work for me. Hmm. I, I, I don't know if it's my stomach's small, or I can, I'm efficient that I can burn off the calories more efficiently or whatever, but I remember Joey uh, Cheek, who was probably 6'2", 6'4", whatever, he can dunk. I can't. Um, <laughs> you can't? I can't dunk. I wish I could. <laughs> I, can, I can reach the bottom of the net. I can flick the bottom of the net. But um, he would. I would eat maybe 20... 22,000 calories maybe a day. Wow. That, that might be wrong. But he was eating like 5,000 calories a day. Yeah, sure. He was, he'd put it in, and I, I couldn't. When I tried to, we go to training camps at the Olympic Training Center and other places, and they would give her, advise us to eat more and more and more and to get more vitamins and more nutrients and all that stuff. I, I couldn't function. I felt like I was just bloated. Mm. I couldn't get in the right position because I couldn't arch, I couldn't roll my hips underneath and, and round my back <laughs> off because I had a belly there. I was wow. always full. And so for me, I just great. And as a child too, I think it just grazed around. My daughter sure. did the same thing. I just great. She grazed around and she ate when she wanted to, and she put mm. things in her mouth and go play. And that's kind of how I was, and that's kind of how I am today too. Um, Do you still eat very few different foods? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a I'm a I'm a creature of habit. That's how um, I am. I don't eat I'm very many different things. No, yeah. I eat what works. Yep. When I find that I eat more things or go out more. I, I gain weight like that, hmm. but I, I'm, I'm still eating both cereal in the morning. I still bring that. Now it's a turkey wrap. I bring a turkey cheese and some nice. lettuce, put it in a tortilla, and that's, that's my turkey wrap for the day. Uh, a yogurt that I'll just pop in my mouth. 
uh, drink water. Hydration is always important. Uh, I used to always have this little mini like sparklets water jug that I yeah. drink all the time. Just make sure I drink the whole thing all day long. Uh, but today's nutrition is different. Um, they are getting more support, more information. Uh, a lot of the athletes now, we, there's actually a nutritionist on site here next door for the U.S. speed skating team. And they'll come after a hard workout and there will be meals made for them. Wow. Or they bring them over and say, hey, this is how we make this recovery drink, or this is a quick way to make a recovery meal. Or when you're in Europe, we're going to Europe or going to Japan or Asia, these are some things you can make if you want to shop for yourself, if you're in a hotel for that period of time. So we didn't really have a lot of that. Just towards the very end, uh, right before the games, we kind of had that, being in Salt Lake here. But for me as an athlete, you know, I mean, you have your rhythm, you, know, you have your balance of what you want to do. And so I wasn't changing anything in those months or weeks, sure. a year before the games, because sure. I was on the way up, I was having success, I was setting personal bests, and I was—I felt like I was primed to have success at the game. So I wasn't going to eat it. I mean, big back then, we had a big bowl of pasta the night before was the was the way to go, right? And then yeah. back in the games, and what was it like? Uh, back when the, it was an older Torres, Dana Torres, who was a swimmer, she was saying that's how I used to train when she was younger. She was this forty-year-old swimmer who was making an Olympic team and winning medals, and now they're telling her to drink shakes and have protein shakes instead of a meal or chicken instead of pasta. And uh, they used to have big stacks of pancakes to just get calories and calories, right? But that's not the way it is anymore. It's just better nutrition, better ways that your body utilizes that energy and stores that energy. Um, and recovery is so important now mm. than it was. I mean, I think it was important back then, but we just didn't know about it. Yeah, right, right. And so the, the more data we get, um, the more information is out there and the more resources you have, I think you can have a better, fitter body uh, and mine as well, as long as you are practicing those and making those part of your routine, you're becoming a student of, of that sport and that piece of your sport. Sure. That's super interesting. I think it's interesting that they're not only providing meals, but actually educating about the meals and how to do this when, you know, the nutritionist maybe isn't around and they have to do it themselves yeah. because I could see them just getting whatever meals here and that's great. And they feel good. And then they go on the road and start eating fast food and don't compete very well. I remember going to, to Europe and it was my first world cup. And here I am in this Olympic sport, right? I came from roller skating, Olympic sport. And we, we had a meeting or something like that. And two of the sprinters came in late and they had gone to, to McDonald's in, in Holland. Uh, and they got a, whatever, a Mac or whatever it is, whatever it's called over there. And they were eating it. And I said, I looked over going, you guys are kidding me. You're kidding me. You're at a World Cup here. And you're eating McDonald's. You're kidding me. Then I was, my eyes were even open more when I went to the, my first Olympics. And when you walk in Olympic Village, you have a cafeteria, right? And in, in a cafeteria, the Olympic Village has a little bit of like a, a continental area where you have all the foods of that country or that region, right? If you're in Italy, you're having a, you know, chicken and pasta and, uh, you know, all kinds of different things and salads and, and things like that you have normally in Europe. Then you have your kind of standard food from Asia, uh, you know, um, noodles, things like that stir fry and you have your your sponsored aisle which is you know your mcdonald's and whoever else oh, yeah. sponsoring. you'd be amazed Casey. <laughs> i sat there and I, I i my first games i didn't get to skate as we mentioned before and i remember being in the in the cafeteria there at the olympic village in japan in nagano japan and i just sat there watching teams come in and all these big bobs like guys come in and skiers and stuff from different like latvia and other you know, <laughs> soviet union whatever or russia would come in Bam! Straight to the McDonald's line, oh, yeah. and they were getting, and it's free. 
So they were coming out with those trays from McDonald's with like four Big Macs, two apple pies, <laughs> filet fishes fries, and they'd go back to their table, and they're just sitting there eating it the whole time. They're at the Olympic Games and wow. eating this this fast food, right? I can't say crap because I, I worked there. I was going to say, did it, you yeah. make it for them? <laughs> <laughs> I could have. You could have. I could have. I could have. Um, and I got to tell you that, um, what was it called? The, the what's that? McGriddles? Yeah. Those are awesome. I was actually there for the first test in, no in, in Las Vegas. I went and spoke to them, the, wow. the company, and they came out with these McGriddles. I'm like, these are gold. These, these are gold. So good. You know? But um, I do eat those when I go skiing. That's funny. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. But yeah, they, all these elite athletes were eating this, this fast food, and, and it, it just blew my mind. And wow. uh, they would take some back to, the, to, the, to their dorm. And, but for them, some of those countries – McDonald's is a delicacy. That's right. It's That's so right. expensive. It's way and they expensive. can't get it, and yep. they'll take it and they eat it. And it tastes amazing. Yeah. It's got yeah. the yeah. salt and the carbs, and yeah, it just tastes perfect. It's yeah. great. And they're the bobsledders. So they're probably just, you know, they're running fast and they're tucking anyway. So. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, well, this has been just an awesome conversation. I want to be respectful of your time. I normally would ask what you would recommend for health and fitness for maybe the average listener. But since we've been talking so much about high performance, I want to know what kinds of things would you recommend for an aspiring athlete, somebody who wants to compete at whatever the highest level they wish to. Maybe maybe they want to get to the Olympics and win gold on their home ice, or maybe they want to do a sprint triathlon, it's some, but they want to perform. What things should they be thinking about? Well, I think first and foremost, got to stay hydrated. I see a lot of athletes that don't drink enough water and stay hydrated, and they, and they have these different issues. They're always feeling hungry because they're not hydrating. And I think that thirst or hunger is a, is a substitute for thirst. Uh, it wasn't my career anyway. I mean, I could I could sip on water and be fine all day and nibble, and I'd be great. But if mm-hmm. I didn't have any water, I found myself snacking a lot just to get something in my mouth. Uh, so if, if I'm a young athlete, I, the advice I would give was, one, lear, learn about, like I said before, a student of the sport. Learn about what's out there and what you can afford, uh, what's practical in your life. You can't expect to have these high-priced meals and all these dietary supplements uh, if you can't afford it, right? It's, 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 it's going to be tough for you. I mean, we were very lucky to have Usana products, and I still take Usana to this day. Uh, there, I, take, I have a shake every morning. I love their shakes. Um, it's a meal replacement, but it's just my morning breakfast. When I'm, when I'm on my fitness kick, drink a shake, have a sensible lunch, have a sensible dinner, and I'm working out it's at least once a day trying to get fit, whether it's P90X with Tony Horton and, uh, or skiing or, or running or something, right, mountain biking. But if you're an athlete, come up, find out what's out there, see what you can fit into your, into your program, and, um, and just be open or aware of what's out there. Uh, try different things. For me, I think being comfortable in what you're doing and having that, that plan and that rhythm um, and that routine is always important at an elite athlete. Uh, now I'm not an elite athlete. I don't need to eat um, in a routine or rhythm, but I find myself comfortable when I do because if I'm not working out, let's say it's Christmas, right, and I'm, I'm working here a lot and I find myself gaining some pounds, I'm, I'm stopping for something on the way home or I'm eating something that you know, my wife wants to try and that kind of thing. And, but every time I talk to her, I say, hey, I'm going on my fitness kick next, starting next week. She'll go, okay. And I'll eat dinner with her with, with my dinners, like what I'll make. Uh, or she knows I'm going to eat a shake in the morning. She's not going to make breakfast. Or my lunch is going to be my wrap. She just knows that I get into these kicks where I feel comfortable, um, I feel fit, and it helps me to continue that on that goal. Mm. Uh, so, again, I know I'm going off tangents here and there, but if you're a young athlete, where my experience was was find what works. Don't feel like you have to do what someone else is doing because everybody's different. Everybody responds differently. 
Um, but find what works for you and build off that. And if you feel you can add something else in nutrition-wise, try it. If it doesn't work, go back to what you normally do and try something else later. But uh, I, I would stay away from that guy does this, I'm going to do exactly what he does. Yeah. Because that happens in training a lot. I, I yep. remember when, in a quick story with Chad Hedrick, Chad never warmed up. He, sorry, Chad, he went out and got drunk. He, <laughs> came, he came, came training smelling like beer or like he just came out from the bar. Um, his gates were, he liked to have them good, but there one time he ran over them. With, oh. He backed up with someone's new car they brought in the parking lot no. and cracked his boot and his blade was an S. But you know what? He went out there that day and he skated probably his fast laps of the year. <laughs> he came here smelling like alcohol one time and I was behind him training and all I could just smell was just the fumes <laughs> his, yeah, coming off his body. <laughs> but he was so strong that year. He didn't warm up. He walked in. The, I would come in the building, warm up. I'd do a mile of, of calisthenics and running, stretch out for half an hour minimum, go out there, get on the inside of the track, jog a couple laps, do some plyos, get my skates on so I'm sweating and go out there and do my workout. Chad would walk in, touch his toes, put his skin suit on, go out there stone cold, hangover, whatever, and he would skate. That was just Chad's, that was him. Nuts. I tried it one time. I, my, the first drill, first laps of a drill, I was out. <laughs> like, sorry, I'm out. I got to go warm up. I, I could have hurt myself. Yep. But everybody's different. Later when Chad got older, he so come to my my routine. He started warming up more and taking care of his body because he when he was young he could do whatever he wanted. Sure, um, I remember eating you know two Big Macs and a filet o fish and a you know and a and a hot apple pie at one point and one seating when I was seventeen. Yeah, but I could right. burn it off. Right, things change. So just be mindful of your body. Be a student of the sport. <laughs> I think be very aware of yourself. Um, I think self awareness is important. But just don't be afraid to experiment. But just stay true to yourself and what you think works for you. And, and monitor your success. Being a student of a sport or anything you do, I think, is so important because you're not just following a program blindly. You are figuring out why things work and how things connect, and I think it just makes you a better athlete and a better person. That's great. Whatever you do. That's such great advice. Derek, it's, it's just an absolute honor to be here with you, to be back with you in the building where you won gold is so exciting. I, I just I can't get enough. You are so willing to share information. Your last... Um, podcast that we did with you was incredible and I think it will help a lot of people and I think this will help a lot of people too so thank you very much for spending time with us today we really appreciate it thank you for having me, having me again and uh, best luck to you happy 2021 happy 2021 so make it a great year <laughs> there's so much to look forward to the sky's the limit yep. uh, yeah, Absolutely. God bless I love it well thanks Derek and this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio